So all the chemical reactions that make fuel, fertilizer, you know, raw materials for clothes, cars, houses, medicine, cosmetics, like could this platform could be adapted to take on the whole trillion dollar chemical value chain. And we were like, mind blown. This is amazing. Welcome back to the Clean Techies podcast, where we interview the top climate tech founders and investors to share their stories, advice, and lessons when it comes to building and investing in climate. Today, we learn exactly what plasmonics is and how it can be used to decarbonize the chemicals industry. Co-founder and CEO of Syzygy, Trevor Best is our guest. And this has to be one of the coolest episodes in quite some time. Um, Really, really just quite fascinating to me as somebody who's not a scientist. Uh, In essence, they use light instead of combustion to power chemical reactors. Most of the products we buy are created from secondary materials after the raw materials pass through a chemical reactor. So you can imagine the decarbonization opportunity is gargantuan. From a commercial standpoint, this tech is really fascinating because their tech can also be tailored to create many products, and they generate revenue by licensing out their technology, so it's highly scalable. In addition to the technology and the commercialization, Trevor also told us his very thorough and scientific approach to finding a startup opportunity. Enjoy the episode. All right. Welcome. Uh, welcome to the show, Trevor. How's, how are things today? It looks like it's very, very nice weather where you are. I can see out your window. <laughs> oh, I, I am in bright and sunny Houston, Texas. And so, uh, yeah, it is nice. It's always nice here. Yeah. I mean, if, if you like the heat, I suppose it's nice. I'm, I'm from Wisconsin, so I don't know if I can, if I could live there. I think the heat is a little, perhaps a little too much for me, but, um, and it's probably only going to get warmer unless, unless we can succeed at building technologies like yours. So hopefully, hopefully that maybe is a, a daily motivator for you. Uh, yeah. And I mean, it, it, Houston in December is pretty nice. It's not so nice in July. And uh, yeah, and that's why we're here. You know, you gotta gotta keep that temperature down. Like, let's uh, let's keep it to like 1.5 or two Celsius instead of the crazy scenarios that that some people are looking at. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So uh, I guess you know, for everybody listening, there's probably some people know you, maybe some people don't. So can you give us a kind of a, a quick intro to who you are and just the story of how you ended up in this in this role? You have a pretty interesting background. Yeah, so uh, you know Trevor Best, co-founder and CEO of Syzygy Plasmonics. To to really understand my life, you got to go back in time to 1985. Born and raised in Midland, Texas, for 18 years, and uh, went to Texas Tech University. Got a couple majors in business. Uh, joined the uh, energy industry with uh, Baker Hughes. They're one of the service providers that help get energy out of the ground. And uh, there, you know, transitioned, became a quality engineer, then quality manager for the Gulf of Mexico. There's a lot of R&D equipment that was put in the deep water Gulf of Mexico. So joined uh, their, you know, R&D team and was a quality manager for their invention process for how they invented new products and brought them to market. Uh, You know, started getting really interested in clean technology back in, you know, the mid 2010s, around 2015 or so. The energy industry hadn't, uh, you know, made the push on the energy transition yet. So we were a little bit before uh, before everyone else there. But yeah, my co-founder, Dr. Kadiwada, and I eventually decided to you know, quit our jobs and uh, you know try and bring something bold to market. And yeah, for the past uh, you know seven years or so, have been working on you know bringing this cutting edge photocatalyst technology into the market. 
Okay, very good. So there's a couple of things there. First of all, um, I think it'd be good if you can just explain what is photocatalyst. So a photocatalyst is a uh, material that uses light instead of you know pressure and temperature to do chemical reactions. So if you go inside a big chemical plant or a refinery, at the heart of those operations, you're going to find an enormous reactor that is powered by you know burning some kind of fossil fuel, usually like natural gas, and uh, they combust that fuel to produce a lot of heat and pressure. Uh, and that is what energizes the catalyst and enables it to do chemical reactions to make, you know, all different kinds of things like fertilizer, raw materials that go into all the products you use, etc. And uh, a photocatalyst is something that uses light instead of heat and pressure to do those things. Hey there, are you building a climate tech business and looking for very specialized talent? Consider reaching out to our sponsors, Next Wave Partners. NextWave are experts in talent acquisition, recruitment, and retention across the climate tech, renewables, and ESG spaces globally. So if your team is growing or you're looking to make a career change yourself, feel free to reach out to NextWave at next-wavepartners.com or reach out to one of their consultants directly via their LinkedIn page. Mm -hmm. Okay, interesting. I think that's a pretty uh, uh, understandable thing for for the non-engineers in the in the chat. Um in terms of going back to the to the story, so how did you end up deciding to to build this technology? You said you were interested in renewables and kind of the energy transition, but what really led you to to take that leap? And and how did you get to meet your co-founder? Yeah, so uh, Syzygy is actually company number uh, attempt number four for me. So had started a, a couple others, uh, you know, nonprofit on water, a, a, an app, a uh, you know, another water startup on water purification. Uh, those did not work for different reasons. Uh, my co-founder had tried to start another company. So uh, we started off having uh, what we'd call energy lunches. And uh, he and I would just go kick around ideas like you know, what would happen if we covered every roof in Houston with solar panels? Like how much energy would that generate? And uh, you know, from you know, kicking uh, those ideas around and from, uh, you know, our previous experience and our experience in R&D and industry, uh, we actually made a framework. Uh, we called it technology, market, and impact uh, by which to assess new technologies. And uh, in 2016, we started a search, you know, and we we're looking at uh, publications coming out of universities and we'd like put it through this framework. Is the technology in a good place? You know, will people buy it if you make it and can can that company actually make money and like impact? Does it do good for the world? And uh, the idea was just, just kind of kill things as quickly as possible, find some reason why it wouldn't scale or why it wouldn't work. And uh, in August of 2016, uh, Rice, you know, released this paper on their cutting edge photo catalyst. Uh, my co-founder was a PhD from Rice. And so we hit up the two professors who wrote the paper. We were like, hey, we'd like to talk. Uh, this was, uh, you know, something like the 80th technology that we had reviewed. And uh, like, my goodness, we could not kill it. We couldn't find a reason why it wouldn't scale. We couldn't find a reason why it wouldn't work. You know, we were calling customers and asking them like, hey, if we were able to turn this into a product, would you buy it? And they were like, I'll buy one right now if you have it. And so uh, eventually after months and months of digging, you know, we decided like, oh, this, this has legs. And so we quit our jobs and, you know, cashed in our 401k and life savings and, you know, started the company. 
I love that. Um, I think it's it's pretty fascinating. A lot of people don't talk about the the the, the unsuccessful attempts at building companies. It usually just sounds like very very nice and and everything was good. Uh, but we all you know we know that's not actually the case when we think about it for a few seconds. Um, there's a couple of interesting things there. So you you came up with a framework. Was that framework developed just kind of through you two speaking, or did it have anything to do with your experience in the kind of invention department, if you will, in your in your previous role? Uh, it, it was mainly based off of the, the previous company attempts. So like the first one didn't make it because we didn't have the right team. The second one, we didn't build a financial model early enough. And when we finally built a financial model, we found that the company could not make money, which was bad. Uh, the third one, uh, we found that the IP was encumbered. Uh, BASF and Dow were suing each other over who owned a core piece of the IP. And so we're like, oh man, if we bring this water purification tech to market, like we're going to get crushed from an IP standpoint. So like that technology, you know, that, that came from our experience in R and D, you know, uh, and also like our experience with, uh, you know, the intellectual property from uh, the third company, the market, you know, that came from the second company, like make sure the financial model is good. And also a little bit of a, a from a program called NSF I core, you know, which is like, you know, basically make sure customers will buy it. And the impact that was, uh, that was all Suman and I, you know, we had a need to do good for the world. So we wanted to assess the impact as well. And then mm -hmm. that's kind of where, hey, could you just, from. yeah. Could you just run through what were the, what are the main things that you test? And then at what point did you start actually calling, you know, customers to, to really test PMF? Cause I'm assuming there's quite a lot you can do quickly upfront. Yeah. So the uh, the first thing that you look at is the technology and uh, you quantify like how does it compare versus, you know, things that are in industry today. And so like since we're looking at a catalyst, we were looking at catalyst metrics like catalyst activity, selectivity, stability, you know, like how long, how much product can it make? How efficiently does it make it? How long does it last before it dies? Uh, things like this. And when we were comparing this uh, tech against other photo catalysts, it outperformed them by like 100x, you know, and in some cases, 1000x, like it was notably better than any other photo catalyst we could find. And then when we started comparing this against like traditional thermal catalysts that are used in refineries, it was outperforming those by like 30x. And so like when we saw that, we're like, oh, okay, wow. this is very interesting. You look at the professors, you know, you want you want to make sure that the, the inventors of the technology are credible. Like if you Google them and you find all kinds of lawsuits because the tech doesn't work, you know, so or like they're having to retract all their papers or something like that, that's bad. And so the professors behind our tech were extremely credible. They were world leaders in this field of science. Uh, like just Google Naomi Hollis uh, at Rice University and look at her uh her uh, resume it's on her website it is you look at that and you're like oh man this this human being is impressive so uh yeah and uh then you look at the market so you first you have to come up with some kind of product idea like what does the product actually look like you have to build a financial model around that like how much would you you know how much would it cost to make how much do you sell it for and then once you have an understanding on how much it would cost to make, how much you'd sell it for, then you can start calling customers. I mean, like, hey, if we were to build a chemical reactor that runs using renewable electricity uh, and was built from low cost materials at around this cost point, would you buy it? And then, you know, you get like indications, yes or no. 
and then uh, in, in there around the same time, you you also want to start doing the impact assessment. Like if you deploy this, like if we have a chemical reactor that runs using renewable electricity, what's the emissions impact? Hey there, thanks for listening to this episode. If you made it this far, it's likely that you're enjoying the show. So I wanted to ask your help. If you're enjoying it, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts and share with somebody in the same industry who might find this interesting. And if you're interested in getting summaries of these episodes, go subscribe to our newsletter that comes out on LinkedIn and Substack. Links can be found in the description. Thanks for your help in growing the reach of this show. Yeah, so yeah okay, start got with it. The tech. Very good. Yeah, start with the tech, then go to uh, you know product idea, then to financial model, then to uh, impact and customer calls can happen at the same time in that progression. Okay. Got it. No, that's really good. I, I like the framework. I think it's, uh, it's pretty fascinating. Not, not a lot of people, uh, at least on their first try, go about it that way. In many cases, they probably just go for it and then realize, oh, you know, maybe, maybe we shouldn't do this. Can you talk a little bit about the ideation? Because you said you have these lunches and maybe you can talk, you know, more broadly speaking about the idea of meeting people and having these kind of discussions, but specifically around how do you come up with ideas? What, what is the ideation process for people who want to build something in climate today? Yeah. So uh, how we would come up with them was like really like tracking we. OK, actually, you know, let's go back to bare basics. Uh, if if you want to do this, you know, it's a being an entrepreneur is a tremendous personal choice. Uh, you should really think hard about what you love, because at some point this is going to be uh, it's going to be difficult. You're going to feel like you're slamming your head against the wall. You know, and uh, you're, you're going to need to find some, you know, motivation, some grit to keep moving forward. And, you know, if you are disciplined and you are working on something you love, you're going to be able to, like, reach down and find that well of energy to keep moving forward despite whatever terrible thing is happening to your startup that day. And so I would start with things you love. I knew that I wanted to do something that had a positive impact on the world. Uh, I was very interested in fighting climate change, and uh, I was also very interested in technology. Like, I uh, wanted to do something with new cutting-edge technology. And so uh, what that looked like for me is I was, uh, you know, following university, uh, you know, press offices. And as they would do press releases on the, the things that were being developed at the university, I would, you know, get, you know, pinged on these things and would go read about it. And so things that you know could have a, an impact on carbon emissions, I'd pay attention to and start digging in on. And uh, like, so let's say Stanford or I, I, here, I, I remember this one, MIT like uh, had a paper on a thermoelectric process where you could uh, you know put some material and it would turn heat directly into electricity. And so like you could wrap, you know, uh, process pipes and, you know, really hot equipment in industrial settings with this kind of material and it would generate electricity that could be used somewhere else in the plant. And uh, like that, that was one of the things we looked at. And so you see this paper, you dig into it and then you'd go like have the energy lunch with, uh, with, you know, your friends and you just kick around, kick it around. Like, what would this actually look like? Like, how would you manufacture it? You know, uh, you know, is there is there an actual use case for this? You know, and it's interesting because waste heat it's a really interesting area. But there's there are a lot of good ways to turn waste heat into electricity today. So, and and that one, the mm -hmm. numbers, like, hey, it, academically, 
very interesting. And all the universities are like, they push their research. They're like, this is the best thing since slight spread. And a lot of this stuff is interesting <laughs> academically. But when you start looking at industry, like you, you need to hit certain performance metrics. And like when we looked at that specific thermoelectric material, like you could convert something like one or 2% of the energy in the heat to electricity. And like, it just, there's not an economic case for it. If you have, if you have excess yeah. heat and you want to turn it to electricity, there was a lot of technology out there that was way, way better. And so when we're looking at like the amount of development that would be needed, like it, it was a long way. It was a long, long, yeah. long way from being commercial. It was not better than what was in the market today. When we looked at our ther thermo catalyst, the fundamentals were like 30x better than what was in the market today. And so then it's just like, oh, can we preserve that, that crazy good number? Can we preserve that number as we scale up? As opposed to we have to make the number fundamentally better while we're scaling up. And so th that's yeah. the kind of things that we would you know, kick around and look at yeah. how we would get it. Yeah, I like that because I think that um, it's very systematic, which I appreciate. And I think that it's quite interesting to just go from the perspective of, okay, what are the possible things that we can build rather than starting with a thesis and then going backwards and trying to find the tech. I know some people have identified an issue and then tried to find uh, science solutions that can solve that by kind of packing them together. So that's quite interesting. Um, very good. Well, that's that's a pretty fascinating story and, and kind of getting into it. Very systematic. I like that. I like the fact that you have... Uh, you know, experience trying to do it. Can you tell us more about the technology, right? So we, 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 we understand a little bit, but tell us more about what it is and maybe the value chain that you're specifically solving this for. Cause I know we, we talked about this on our intro call and just give us some basics. Yeah. So uh, going to get into the technology first and there's really two pieces. One is the catalyst and then the next is the reactor. And so uh, the catalyst is a two part photo catalyst. And I'm going to start with the, the core of it. Uh, the two professors at Rice went uh, down this rabbit hole of nanophotonics for about three decades. And, uh, you know, starting in the like late 80s uh, to like the 90s when they started getting into this field called plasmonics. And basically some materials, when you hit them with light, they can catch all of the energy in the light and they transfer that energy into the electrons on the surface of the material. It's called a surface plasmon. So basically you hit it with light and all the electrons on the outside of the materials get excited and start jumping around. The professors uh, then started to synthesize these nanoparticles that you could tune, you know, what wavelength of light the nanoparticles could catch based off the size of the nanoparticles. And they become world leading experts and actually came up with the concept of the quote unquote tunable plasmon. So, you know, catching light of different wavelengths and tuning the nanoparticles to generate plasmons based on the light of different wavelengths uh, in the they started using this tech to actually like fight uh, for sensing applications for the Department of Defense. So the Department of Defense was like, hey, if there's one photon, how do we make sure that we catch it with like 100 percent certainty? And so made these things near perfect light harvesters. They can catch all of the photons you send at them. They started using them to fight cancer. So they're like, oh, hey, we can inject these things into a tumor and shine a wavelength of light that will pass through your skin. And these particles will catch it and then they'll heat up and like burn out the tumor from the inside. Like cool stuff. And then they 
keep working on it, keep working on it. And uh, so they make this perfect light harvester and that's the base. And then in 2016, they said, hey, what happens if we take a, a regular catalyst, like a catalyst in a refinery or something, and we decorate, we put that on the outside of these perfect light harvesters, you know, these plasmonic nanoparticles. What happens if we decorate them with traditional catalysts? And uh, they did that. And then they published that paper in 2016. It was kind of like, hey, it works. This is interesting results. And that was when Suman and I found it. And uh, actually, that first paper in 2016 wasn't that exciting. You know, we were interested. We we're like, OK, this is interesting, but the results aren't that good. And they're like, oh, hey, we have some data that's not published. How are these results? How do these look? And we looked at that and uh, those that was really impressive. Uh, and and we, we asked him, we're like, hey, do you know that this number is 30 times higher than the catalyst they're using in the refinery in Baytown? It's 30 times better than what's in industry. And they're like, oh, we, we had no idea. That's interesting. What it, does that mean anything? And uh, so we're like, okay, so these two part nanoparticles, like very good light harvester combined with traditional catalyst, what we saw, fantastic numbers. We saw that this was a platform. It could be adapted by changing out the type of catalyst you put on the outside of the light harvester. You could do different chemical reactions. So all the chemical reactions that make fuel, fertilizer, you know, raw materials for clothes, cars, houses, medicine, cosmetics, like could this platform could be adapted to take on the whole trillion dollar chemical value chain. And we were like, mind blown. This is amazing. And then we realized no one had ever made a chemical reactor to deliver industrial quantities of light to a photocatalyst. So the first thing we did was we uh, were going to make a chemical reactor that ran on sunlight. You know, of course, we have a photocatalyst. It was actually originally designed to use broad spectrum sunlight. And so we try to make a business model around this and it completely failed. Uh, it was really interesting. The tech works great with sunlight and beyond the shadow of a doubt, Syzygy can make chemical reactors that run using sunlight. But the business model, we couldn't get it to work because chemical plants need 24 seven operation. Like they need to run day in, day out, and the sun is not available 24 seven. And so you have to just out the gate, you have to build the plant like three times larger than you need to so that you can make, like if you're making hydrogen, for example, and you want to feed a chemical process, you need to make all the hydrogen that that process needs in the eight hours that the sun is up and then store it to feed that process overnight so you don't have to shut down the plant. You know, it's uh, it's pretty interesting. And then you need to have a buffer tank so that if, this, if it's a cloudy week, they don't have to shut down their operation. You know, so like, cause man, it would, it would suck if all fuel production in the Gulf Coast stopped because you had a cloudy week. That would be bad for the global economy. <laughs> And so you have to build these huge buffer tanks to store things like for when the sun's not around and like that storage tank and the fact the intermittent nature of the sun just blew up the business model. And so then we're like, OK, can we use artificial lights? And we managed to find some extremely efficient artificial light sources. Uh, we started with LEDs. We've actually found a more efficient light source than an LED now, which is pretty crazy. 
But yeah, so we started marrying our photocatalyst with an artificial light source. You power that artificial light source with renewable electricity and boom, you suddenly have a way to power, you know, uh, industrial applications like industrial chemical manufacturing with renewable electricity. And so it allows us to you know, have 24 seven hour operation. Yeah. So highly specialized reactor combined with photocatalyst is our technology. We wanted to take a quick break to tell you about another climate tech podcast. Well, literally, Ryan Grant Little hosts a podcast called Another Climate Tech Podcast, where he interviews climate tech founders and VCs, which, as I'm sure if you're listening to this podcast, you will love. So we highly recommend checking him out. The link will be in the description to this episode. Now back to the show. Amazing. And before we get into the materials kind of supply chain thing <laughs> that I wanted to understand, could you give us some examples of what, what you anticipate the difference in uh, energy usage from kind of conventional um, catalyst technologies to this, like megawatts? I don't know the specific measurements you use, but can you just understand that? Yeah, so uh, like I'm going to talk about hydrogen production. Uh, we have a platform. Uh, we're currently focused on hydrogen production and also uh, e-fuel. So like uh, if you've heard of sustainable aviation fuel or SAF, uh, that pathway uh, as well. But I'm going to focus on hydrogen production because it's a bit easier to talk about. Uh, today, most of that uh, hydrogen is made through traditional steam methane reforming. And uh, you know, in this, you're burning a lot of methane to produce heat and pressure to reform methane to make hydrogen. Uh, altogether, you know, our tech, uh, you know, there's two big things to know. One is we have a pretty significant reduction in emissions because we don't have to burn any fuel to power our technology. And uh, on the other hand, uh, we are a little bit more efficient. So a traditional steam methane reformer operates at about 70% overall energy efficiency. Ours is about 80% efficient. You know, uh, we plan to be when we go to market. Uh, another good technology to compare us against is electrolysis. So this is splitting water to make hydrogen. And they do this with electricity. It takes a lot of electricity, uh, about 50 kilowatt hours per kilogram. Uh, the, the two pathways we're working on, uh, which is a blue hydrogen pathway and an ammonia cracking pathway, uh, and those are 15 or 10 kilowatt hours per kilogram, respectively. So it's about a four to five X reduction in the amount of power needed to create hydrogen. And so from an efficiency standpoint, though, they can also get into like the 75, 80% efficiency range. So similar efficiencies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, interesting. That's, uh, that's pretty fascinating. Some of this stuff, I, I should probably do more reading to understand the, the details of this, but I appreciate that. I think it's pretty clear to understand. In terms of, I guess, the, the reason I wanted to ask the question around the, the material supply chain perspective is can you just kind of explain it so people understand how your technology is applicable to all different uh, methods of production, you know, producing different, different kind of um, materials? Yeah. Here, so I, I'm just going to pick a couple examples and I'll walk walk you through those and people will start to see like how this can, uh, it, it, I wouldn't say it directly impacts everyday life, but the things that this impacts appear in everyday life. So for hydrogen production, uh, you need hydrogen to make all kinds of things. Uh, like for example, you need hydrogen to make ammonia, which is fertilizer. And uh, you know, that's how we all eat. So without hydrogen production, like no fertilizer, that's bad. Uh, you need hydrogen to make fuel, which is how we all get around the world every day. So uh, like 
every time you know you use fuel or you you know eat something you know hydrogen is in that value chain uh, you know, another reaction we're working on, ammonia synthesis, where we're actually taking the hydrogen that we make and then turning it into fertilizer, you know, very much in the fertilizer world as well. Another reaction we've done, uh, ethylene goes into polyethylene, this goes into plastics, you know, and, uh, you know, ultimately can also go into textiles, which is clothing. You know, uh, the aromatics and the olefins like go into a whole lot of different like everyday products that you see around you you know the things that you make your phone and computer and you make you know the plastic that goes on the outside of your car you know all these things uh, like another project we're running uh, is butadiene which is synthetic rubber for tires so a, a lot of this is like stuff that's not super sexy you know, uh, like we're, we're not making, uh, directly making cosmetics. And so I, I don't think uh, a L'Oreal model is ever going to you know, be in a Syzygy commercial, like you should buy Syzygy hydrogen or something like that. But uh, you know, these are the fundamental building blocks that you build, you know, all the things that you need to run a society on. And so that's what we're really tackling is like the base foundation, the, you know, industrial base that makes all the other things yeah yeah no i think it's really fascinating some people say it's not sexy i think it's the coolest thing ever because you know being somebody who had a kind of a different like i wasn't necessarily exposed to the things most people were growing up so when i learn about how the how all this stuff works i'm always extremely fascinated and i think it's it's quite interesting when people build businesses that can hypothetically really really uh, change kind of the the underlying processes to make it much better so speaking on this, on this idea of uh, hypothetically changing things, there's a lot of companies that are in climate who are, you know, building and they kind of, they have a tendency to overstate uh, how far they are. Can you talk about traction and just maybe any, any comments on where you guys are versus your comments on the industry and what needs to happen? Yeah. So uh, the, the industry is in an interesting place right now. Uh, I think that the whole world uh, and you know, if any of you follow venture capital, you, you're probably seeing this as well. I think the whole world got, uh, you know, drunk on, you know, essentially free money. Uh, There's low interest rates that uh, were around uh, during COVID times. And so a lot of money poured into a whole lot of startups. And uh, I think there are a lot of uh, companies that have scaled and have built massive facilities and have huge burn rates, but don't have the customer traction yet. So I think the uh, the next couple of years are going to be really, really fascinating to watch. Uh, for Syzygy, you know, we, we've done a pretty good job. We've collected a number of strategic investors that are also interested in working on projects with us. You know, just name a few, uh, some of the big energy companies like Equinor, Chevron, BP, Aramco, uh, chemical companies like Latte Chemical. Uh, Pan American Energy is one of the largest energy companies in South America. Sumitomo Corporation of Americas, you know, uh, plays a role in developing a lot of these projects. Uh, we also recently picked up uh, Mitsubishi Heavy Industries America. So a lot of the big players in the energy and chemical space, you know, are uh, tracking us and uh, working with us. Right now, we are bringing our technology to market for the first time. So we just started testing our industrial reactor cell uh, about two and a half months ago. And the testing is going very well. It's going well enough that we're already starting to get uh, you know, comfortable talking about things like performance guarantees 
And uh, going into next year, we're going to be working to secure some customer contracts, some like binding commercial contracts, you know, to bring the technology into the market. And uh, if we're able to do that next year, I think sky is the limit. Yeah, if not, it's going to be uh, it's going to be rough, and I'm going to be in the same boat with uh, with a lot of the others. Mm-hmm. And so hopefully, uh, hopefully, energy transition like moves forward. Hopefully, you know, regulatory comes in and continues to support energy transition. And uh, yeah, we're able to you know, actually start to decarbonize. Hey there, quick break to remind any founders or VCs listening, if you are looking for deal flow, seeking to raise funding, looking for partners to help service your needs, or perhaps you're looking for corporate investment partners, feel free to reach out to us through our Slack channel, which can be found in the description. Because we meet a lot of people in this space, we set aside time each week to make introductions to the various people that we encounter. This is something we do free of charge in order to help these incredible companies solving climate change to scale. Looking forward to hearing from you in the Slack channel. Mm-hmm. So I guess on this idea, you know, on this topic of going from kind of the, the lab to the scale, can you, do you have perspectives for other people doing similar, you know, deep tech type of things where, hey, here's what the general landscape should look like. You, you probably will spend you know, X amount of time doing this and then once you can achieve X, then you're going to see the exponential growth or you're dead, right? Like, do you have any kind of just general advice on that process of scaling and getting to the market? So uh, I think the, the best way to talk about this is in terms of technology readiness level or TRL. And uh, if any of you are curious about this, you can just Google like uh, technology readiness level NASA or Department of Energy and you'll see their TRL levels. Uh, and basically this assesses like how ready a technology is to go to market. When we first, uh, this is a zero through nine scale. Zero is basically like somebody has an idea. One is they start to work out like the basic math behind it. Two is they have a theoretical framework, uh, so on and so forth. Uh, when we found Syzygy's technology, it was around a three and had started getting experimental results. And we have now taken it to an eight. Uh, with nine being fully commercial. Uh, It is possible to skip levels, but uh, it's generally recommended against. There's a lot of risk in that. You can run into problems if you try and scale the technology too fast. And those problems can be difficult to solve. Like some things that are easier to solve at small scale uh, can become insurmountable at large scale. And if you designed your plant in a certain way, you know, like I said, could be challenging. Uh, rules of thumb, we have been able to advance the tech about one TRL level per year. And uh, you should scale the company accordingly. Uh, at TRL 8, we're around 100 employees. And uh, you know we've raised about $110 million to get to this point. And we're like going to market like with the idea to turn the tech into TRL 9 over the next uh, you know year and a half or so. Uh, I would say that uh, the time to really punch the accelerator and start scale like in a big way is around TRL eight. Uh, doing it before then, there's a lot of risk. Yeah, so that's quite interesting. So generally speaking, the the company, let's say, just the maybe employee count was relatively flat or maybe slight growth until you get to point yeah. of eight, and then you really hire a bunch. I, I can give you give you actual numbers. So when we founded it three, we had four employees, and those four employees advanced it to uh, I would say around a four early five level. Then we grew to about twenty employees, and with twenty we took it from you know five to six. 
And then we grew to around, uh, you know, 50 employees and we took it from six to seven and then we grew to around a hundred and a hundred have taken it from uh, seven to eight. And then like to get like fully operational with, and be like operating at a TRL nine, our company will probably need about double again, like, you know, 200 employees or so. Mm -hmm. Okay. Got it. And then just to clarify, I don't think we mentioned this yet. What, who are you selling to and what's the business model? Is it, you know, you're building the hardware or are you selling licenses? Uh, so we're working on a licensor model where we, you know, it, it's a licensor slash OEM model where we license the tech and uh, we also sell the, you know, reactor cells and like module that they go into to the end users. Yeah, this is what we call partnership heavy business model. We need an operator who wants to operate the plant. We need an EPC, this engineering procurement construction company, an EPC partner to actually like design and build the plant around our technology uh, you need like, you know, feedstock providers, you need you know, a lot of different partners to execute this business model. So can you talk more about that? You're saying, so it, it's an, it's a licensed model, but you will find somebody else who's going to, you're going to partner with them to, they're going to operate it. And then you guys will finance the plan. Like, can you just maybe talk a little bit more about that for people who aren't familiar? Yeah. And we don't, we don't finance the plant either. That would be a project developer. So like, okay. uh, we basically find a, uh, you know, market that has a need, like uh, let's say Korea, they're looking at bringing, you know, a lot of clean hydrogen into the country. Uh, they're probably going to be doing this through ammonia cracking. So uh, targeting Korea, we find someone in Korea who's interested in ammonia cracking, latte chemical, you know, one of our investors uh, who we're doing a field trial with. And uh, we, you know, license the technology to them and sell them the reactors. They work with the EPC to design the plant around our system. You know, uh, they also are a big ammonia importer, so they bring in the ammonia and they use our reactor and the system around it to crack that ammonia into hydrogen. Okay, so the only thing that you have to build then is the reactor. Yep. Got it. So you, there is still it's, some kind of component of manufacturing and production. Yeah, and uh, it, it, under this model, it's a very high margin business model, but uh, you, you know, you have to give things like performance guarantees and guarantee yeah. that the reactors to work in a certain way for a certain amount of time and yeah okay yeah i mean they're not going to purchase expensive equipment or, or license it and then you know a couple years later be like oh wait what the heck is this like you're done like <laughs> lawsuits everywhere yeah. right and specifically we're able to execute this business model because uh like they're looking at it's not just us they're also looking at other options and and what they're seeing is that we have the potential to be the lowest cost option okay got it yeah okay interesting um, very good. Well, that, this is good. I think we've covered the majority of things that I, I, we needed to cover. Um, maybe to kind of wrap things up, a couple other things would be, do you have any specific advice in the fundraising process for this hardware? Maybe tying it to how you pitch versus where you are in the TRL process, just kind of advice to other people in space. Cause there are many people who are going to go through this, you know, fundraising difficulty. Yeah, I, I think there's a couple things that I've learned along the way. Uh, you know, one is that this is all about storytelling. Like uh, in the beginning, like <laughs> pretty much every fundraise we've done, Syzygy has like almost died for different reasons. Uh, in the first fundraise, I uh, didn't really know how to do storytelling in the beginning. And so like our first pitch was like, you know, Syzygy's got a plasmonic photocatalyst that can like elicit hot electron transfer to catalyze, you know, chemical reactions of, and like nobody cared and uh <laughs> nobody knows it, what that is 
Yeah. <laughs> like, like, I mean, literally, it was like the, the you know, room would be like dead silent and there'd be like that one awkward cough in the back and they'd be like, okay, get off stage. Like, uh, it was bad. And, uh, you know, over time learned like how to tell a good story and how to like get things really succinct and get people excited you know, like, you know, cutting edge technology that can clean up the chemical industry and save you a lot of money. Like, don't you want to buy one? Uh, so, you know, watch, you know, YouTube series, you know, show up at your local accelerator and take pitch classes, but like really uh, strongly recommend Guy Kawasaki's 10, 20, 30 model, you know, so just Google Guy Kawasaki 10, 20, 30, you know, phenomenal uh, way to think about your pitch. Like just keep things crisp, uh, you know, and focus on communicating your story in a way that the audience can receive it. Uh, then in the second fundraise, uh, we counted too much on one investor where, you know, we basically put all of our eggs in one basket and they dropped at the last minute and it was brutal. Like we almost died. And so I would always do a competitive fundraise process and I would not be comfortable unless if you are talking to like, you know, five or six or 10 investors that might lead your next round. And so never, never put all your eggs in one basket on the investment side. And uh, the final piece of advice would be, uh, you know, never give up, never get discouraged. This can be a frustrating game. And Whenever I was back in college, I took an entrepreneurship class. I, I remember one thing from it, and the professor said, uh, the only difference between a successful entrepreneur and a failed entrepreneur is that the successful one has failed 10 times more. And, you know, basically it's just an anecdote about, like, you know, whenever you fall off the horse, like, go get back on. You know, this is, like, we're, Sisyphe's having a lot of success, you know, we're on series C, we're about to go raise a series D. We've raised over a hundred million dollars, all this. This is company number four. You know, uh, each one of our fundraises has had challenges and then we've like adjusted and gotten back on the horse and gotten it closed. So yeah, never give up, never get discouraged, stay on it and you'll get there. Yeah. I appreciate that. Do you have any particular advice around selecting investors when you're building something in hardware? Uh, make sure that, uh, you know, they understand what you're doing. So like with your financial investors, make sure that they have people in inside that can evaluate the techno economics of your technology. Uh, you, you probably don't want to be their own. If you're doing hardware, you probably don't want to be their only hardware investment. Uh, if they've only done software before you, they're not going to understand the kinds of trials and tribulations you have to go through. So yeah, it really be focused on finding financial investors who invest in other companies similar to yours and understand the, the journey that hardware has to take, you know, on the strategic side, you know, make sure that there's actually a strong strategic alignment and they're actually going to move on your technology. Mm -hmm. Okay. Interesting. You know, I appreciate and, uh, that. Make sure that there aren't any like really egregious commercial terms <laughs> tied to the strategic investment. Got it. Okay. Um, very good. And then the last thing I think I'll ask is, do you have any particular, uh, I think you, you've talked about this a little bit before. So can you talk maybe about your, your thesis on culture and hiring and talent? Yeah. So uh, when you're looking for people, uh, in the beginning, you, you really need to look for missionaries instead of mercenaries, like people who, you know, are showing up because they have some kind of personal mission 
that they're satisfying. And so like whenever I interview people, you know, I'm always asking questions like, why do you get out of bed in the morning? Like what, you know, what are you trying to accomplish with your life? And what I found is that that really driven people who have some kind of personal mission, whether or not it's to like advance technology or fight climate change, uh, it can even be like, you know, they, they want to provide a, a legacy for their family. Uh, but the people who have a personal mission, they will dig deep and overcome when times get tough. Uh, the people who are true mercenaries and they're like, listen, man, I'm just here to collect a paycheck. Uh, they usually uh, jump ship the first time they get a, you know, a higher paying job offer or uh, things get difficult. And so definitely be looking for, you know, that missionary type personality who is wanting something more out of life uh, that your your startup can give them. And then on culture, you know, we do a couple of interesting things in Syzygy. Uh, we buy everyone in the company a pair of branded shoes because we walk this clean tech path together and we get to walk in each other's shoes. Uh, there is a big mural wall. Uh, outside my office that uh, everybody gets the opportunity to sign and it's you know, just a commitment to fighting climate change and you know trying to live up to the core values and so little things like this you know buying shoes and signing a wall is you know, it's kind of funny but it really does help bring us together it lets everyone know that you know we're here for a good cause and we're in this together and that would recommend you know doing things like that having you know culture events in your company as you grow. Yeah, I think that's quite interesting. What well, one last thing on that you mentioned hiring missionaries versus mercenaries. Are do you find that even within climate that sometimes the person's mission may not be specifically that they want to fight climate change, but their mission is still strong and in another way that you say, you know what, I'm I'm willing to hire this person. Is it always focused on solving climate change? Uh, no, it, I think the three big buckets that I see a lot are family, uh, technology and fighting climate change. Mm -hmm. Okay. Interesting. Like, and fighting climate change is kind of like doing good for the world. Like they want to do good for the world. Technology is like, they're just absolutely fascinated and love cutting edge technology. And, uh, you know, family is like, uh, it, it can be similar to climate change. They want to provide a better world for their, their family or their children, you know, and, uh, can also, you know, be that they want their kids to be proud of them. You know, they want to be seen as doing something that does good as a role model for their family. So the, these things can be intertwined, but th those are the three big ones I see a lot. Yeah. Okay. Very good. Well, I appreciate this. I think this has been a really good episode. Uh, I think thanks for coming on. Any calls to action for the audience? Any final thoughts? Yeah. Wake up tomorrow morning and switch your electricity plan to renewable electricity. That's Most people call can do that. Action. Yeah, if, if you if you do that tomorrow, then you've you've done a huge chunk of your part. <laughs> if everyone woke up and did that tomorrow morning uh, and just demand for renewable only skyrocketed, would be a huge positive thing for the world. Awesome. Well, I'll, I'm gonna. I'm pretty sure I've already done this, but I'm gonna double check now that you now that you said this. But I appreciate you coming on, man. This is this is great. Awesome. Hey, thank you, Silas. Always a pleasure.